everyone. Happy June. It is June 1st. If how, you are, how is it June 1st? <laughs> it is June 1st. If you were listening to this on the first day we released it. And this weekend we are going to Monster Belize. Oh, so excited. Very excited. I will exhaust myself in horror merch. Um, horrorness. We're going to need a, like a U-Haul <laughs> truck. I'm hoping to like manage my my buying, but... I we'll see. I may just bring cash. Yeah. And go, okay, and once go, this, this is, is gone, then I'll take out more. And I'll go to the ATM. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't know. We'll just see. I mean, honestly, like it's been a couple of years, so we're a little bit excited and we want to do this and also go to maybe Midsummer Scream or whatever. So, yeah. The merch season begins. And on that note, I think you have something to say about some horror merch. Okay. So, first of all, those of you who follow our Instagram, saw that I ended up getting a very limited release of the Lost Boys soundtrack on vinyl. I had to wait a year for it. And I went on to see if people can still purchase it because I wanted to let y'all, because I had a lot of people react to this post. And right now it's currently unavailable. But I did go on to the horror merch website and they have a bunch of soundtracks on vinyl that were just released. So if you're someone like me who likes to collect uh, vinyl, especially from some of our favorite uh, horror films, horrormerchstore.com, Krampus, The Last Drive-In, Joe Bob's First Season is on there, Last House on the Left, Malignant, Night of the Living Dead, Nightmare on Elm Street, Phantasm, Psycho Goreman. These are all vinyl. Trick or Treat, Us, Jordan Peele's Us. Uh, Let's see, there's a couple other really cool ones on here. Friday the 13th, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Carrie, Rosemary's Baby, Alice Sweet Alice. There's so much. The Babadook. I mean, the list goes on. So, and I think Black Christmas. There's a ton, all on vinyl. So, if if you like that kind of stuff, horrormerchstore.com. There's a ton there. Beetlejuice and my favorite, Edward Scissorhands. Nice. Do you have a whole record player set up in your living room or something? I have one up in my office. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And I have one I, in the living room. I just love the sound of vinyl. Yep. Me too. So there you go. And I like the, I also like the artwork that we don't get it anymore because everything is digital. I just love collecting, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's something that's come back. Mm -hmm. I just started collecting albums again myself. Yeah. Yay. Uh, But on that, you know, additionally, I wanted you to know that there was a man who died of a heart attack while burying a woman in his backyard. I saw this. That's karma. May, right? It's uh, happened in May. On Saturday morning, deputies, and this is, of course, a few weeks ago, but this is the, I'm reading from the WFLA.com news site. On Saturday morning, deputies, along with the Edgefield County Coroner's Office and Edgefield County EMS, responded to 102 Tanglewood Drive in Trenton, South Carolina, to a call of an unresponsive man Lying in his yard, Joseph Anthony McKinnon, 60 years old, of the same address, was found deceased in his yard. Mr. McKinnon had no signs of trauma, so they just thought, you know, natural causes. While investigating the death and making notifications to his next of kin, a second body was located in a freshly dug pit. Patricia Ruth Denton, who was 65, of the same address appear to have died of foul play. On Monday, autopsies were performed on both bodies and the cause of death for Mr. McKinnon was confirmed as a cardiac event, whereas Miss Dent seems to have died of strangulation. (laughs) A little different. A little different. So evidence gathered at the scene along with statements from witnesses aided investigators to build the timeline and they believe Mr. McKinnon attacked Miss Dent inside their home, bound her, wrapped her in trash bags before putting her in the previously dug pit. So there was a plan. The pit was then partially filled in by Mr. McKinnon while covering the pit. Apparently he had a big old heart attack. Yikes. Well, that sucks, dude. I bet when you thought about the end of your life, it wasn't going to look like that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, don't know the circumstances. Perhaps wasn't planning except for that day to kill his wife. Not sure how long that went on. I guess we'll never know. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I thought you might need to know. You have some hard news, too, I think. Yes. This is a fun story. This came out on uh, just horror.com. Sure. Life-size Jason Voorhees chained to the bottom of an Arizona lake. This is a great story. 
So as we celebrate the date of one of filmdom's most beloved titles, we thought you might appreciate the story of diver Zachary Nagy, who put Jason Voorhees at the bottom of Lake Pleasant, Arizona, twice. Uh-huh. Said a while ago, we told you about a life-size art project made of certain hockey masks slasher named Jason, who was removed from the bottom of Lake Pleasant in Arizona. The story is mostly true, but there's a new twist you might be interested in. Like we said in our previous articles, uh, Nagy made the statue in honor of Jason's watery demise in Friday the 13th, part six. The lake bed uh, diorama also includes a road sign that reads Crystal Lake. The diving community thought the idea was cool and a legend was born. It wasn't until videos surfaced on Reddit of the underwater forum that things got complicated. The Arizona Parks Department saw the footage and thus begun their mission to remove it. (laughs) But here's where things get murky. Our first article states that the statue had been removed, but Nagy in a 2018 interview for Slasher Radio says, nope, he's still there. The suits (laughs) just haven't found him yet. (laughs) In fact, the artist said that he relocated the body after Lake Pleasant was drained. He says they drain the lake lower than they ever have before this year, said Nagy in the interview at the time. So we ended up having to move him like two months in. So everyone thought Jason disappeared for a little bit. He got down to like 20 feet of water and we're like, okay, let's move him back to 60. (laughs) So now he's 60 feet down. So he says, for now, it seems Jason is still anchored at the bottom of the lake somewhere and divers can visit him if they know where to look. But Nagy isn't giving anything away. He says it's at at Lake Pleasant, but the location I will not tell you. (laughs) Nice. Let's hope the Mulder wannabes at the Arizona Parks Department are unsuccessful in their mission to dredge up Mr. Voorhees. This Fun. is hilarious. And there's a picture. If you go to horror.com and you put in life-size Jason Voorhees, there's a there's a video. I mean, it's legit. This thing Fun. is cool. Um, and, you know, I got you your little one for, for the holidays. Yeah. And that's exactly like what I think about. Oh, it's just, yeah. yes. When you first said it, I was like, are you going to find like they make those somewhere or something? Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. I have uh, one more little thing, a little psych thing for us before we get to your horror facts uh, or the questions, actually. We don't actually get the facts right out of the gate. We got to work for those. We do. Kathy and I know this, but maybe some people don't. Psychopathic tendencies linked to reduced susceptibility to contagious yawning. We know why that is, but I thought you guys might want to know the research. So people with psychopathic personality traits, such as remorselessness, et cetera, we talk about those ad nauseum on the show, Mm -hmm. are less likely to yawn after seeing another person yawn, according to the research published in Scientific Reports. So contagious yawning is well documented in humans, obviously. And there's a positive link between empathy and the susceptibility to contagious yawning. Psychopathy is characterized by callousness, domineering behavior, as well as, you guessed it, deficits in empathy, as we have stated before. So, uh, you know, it would make sense that they are less susceptible to contagious yawning because you have to be empathetic Mm -hmm. in order to do that. So in recent years, there's been growing interest in understanding the factors that contribute to a variation in yawn contagion. I just love that. Yeah. It makes it sound so fancy. It may, even the word yawn, see, it makes me want to yawn. The yawn contagion. Okay, so Kathy will be yawning, and I am not empathetic to her, so I will not yawn. <laughs> She's psychopathic. I'm tested a psychopath. It. However, previous psychological studies examining individual differences in the contagiousness of yawning have produced mixed results. In addition, many of these studies have been conducted on relatively small and homogenous samples. Like that's what the problem we get into with research, of course, is that, and and most of us who've done any kind of thesis or dissertation research know that we can't get a very huge sample. It's usually just like a starting point for the research. And a lot of professionals, it's the same thing. So recruiting the largest and most diverse sample in the study of contagious yawning to date, this is what this research has done, 458 participants from 50 different countries watched a three-minute video depicting 49 yawns from humans and one yawn from a dog. They were then asked to indicate whether they had yawned while watching the video. Afterward, the participants completed multiple assessments of psychopathic traits. Can you imagine? Here's this video of a yawn. Watch it. Now I'm going to put you through a whole battery of tests that brand you as a psychopath. People, so here's the thing. People who scored higher on psychopathic personality traits ten, tended to be less likely to yawn contagiously. So they actually basically, the, 
the point is, is that we've never had, we don't have that many like bigger studies. I mean, it makes yeah. logical sense, yeah. but we don't have a lot of bigger studies. And I guess this was one of those ones. That- right. Cause we've heard this before, but they have like, this is a solid piece of research. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's big enough and diverse enough to sort of say like, Hey, we've actually got a little bit of research. A little bit of proof. I mean, you know, one study doesn't, doesn't make a yeah. truth, but you know, Hey, it's a start. Cool. So you wouldn't immediately write somebody as a psychopath if they don't yawn, like but just now they might raise because they might just not be caution. tired enough. So the next thing we would like to do is a little thing that we like to call. Who fucks with you? Mm-hmm. I'm gonna need a little more variety. Of, I need you to work up a couple more. Oh, versions. Uh huh. Okay. I'm all right. <laughs> I have tasked her. All right. Well, I'm just kidding. You got the hard rock one and you got the opera one. I'm looking for more genres. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to think about that. Thank you. Thank you. A little, <sighs> a little behind the scenes instruction. That's <laughs> what happens when we're not recording. Later. Yeah. 2 a.m. in the morning, I get a text. You know, I've been thinking about that horror facts with Kath jingle. I really need some more genres. And I'm um, kind of disappointed in the repeats. Really? Okay. Number one, special effects artists design the Gill Man... In the creature from the Black Lagoon, after what famous figure? <laughs> I do love the way you say it. figure. Figure. Mm-hmm. Number two, the movie Nosferatu originated from which country? Yes. Number three, what is the hypnagogic jerk? <laughs> and it's not a dance. Bless you. Number four. What 1991 horror film starring D. Wallace Stone and Ray Walston is about a film student and aspiring screenwriter who has recurring dreams of a young girl named Sarah who's caught in a fire and being chased by a strange man trying to kill her? Nice. And number five. Mm-hmm. In 1898, American author Morgan Robertson wrote a novella that unknowingly predicted one of the most devastating American tragedies, which occurred in 1912. What was this tragic event? I don't know, but thank you. You're welcome. Right on. So what we are doing on the show today, as represented in the title of this show, is we are going to talk about natural born killers, and we're going to do that right after the break. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I feel like the song would go pretty well in the movie Natural Born Killers. One of the things I remembered about the movie, and I hadn't watched it in a really long time, is I loved the music in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I remember when it first came out how how much I love the music, of yeah. course, because it was like Nine Inch Nails, and there's oh, all yeah. these really cool songs. And I thought the music, I, I still was like, oh, yeah, I love the music in this movie. And I revisiting it, you know, from the 90s obviously i haven't i haven't honestly watched it in a couple decades probably neither have i but it's a 1994 two hour long movie natural born killers uh written by quentin tarantino well the story is by quentin tarantino and then of course there's a couple of writers that wrote the screenplay and then oliver stone directed starring woody harrelson juliette lewis tom sizemore tommy lee jo- tommy lee jones robert downey jr like so many people from back in the day and i recognized a lot of other actors, I mean, Roddy Dangerfield obviously was easy to recognize, but like Jared Harris and... You mean uh, Robert Downey Jr.? 
Sorry, Robert yeah. Downey Jr. What did I say? Roger, Robert, or, or Rodney Dangerfield. Well, Rodney Dangerfield's <laughs> in it too, but I mentioned Robert Downey Jr. earlier. Oh, he did? Yeah. Oh, I missed okay. that. Sorry. Got no worries. She's not listening to me. It's fine. I don't. I know. Okay. I noticed that Mark Harmon had a couple of lines yeah. in there. I saw a couple of other actors in there that I really like recognized from a bunch of stuff, which was super fun. So a lot of people had little, little, you know, before they were big, before they were famous, there they had little parts. There are a lot of cameos in this. And Robert yeah. Downey Jr. was flipping hysterical yeah, in this movie. Yeah, I forgot how yeah. funny he is. So what was it like after so many years watching this movie? Did you remember it? Uh, yeah, yeah, honestly, this movie, it annoyed me. okay it's just it it's like i mean their performances are wonderful yeah yeah i I mean their performances are excellent but i i have a i have a love-hate relationship with tarantino and the movies that i really love i love like inglorious bastards i loved but some movies like this like even pulp fiction i kind of have a whatever too and this this is just one of those movies where it's just like it, it it just feels like very loud i don't know how to describe it it just it's like it's non-stop and i watched it this time and it was just a little too much for me honestly yeah fair i mean for me it's got oliver stone written all over it i Mm -hmm. mean obviously it's the story is by quentin tarantino so it doesn't for me it doesn't have his stereotypical banter and you know the long monologues doesn't have his screenplay style it has the story of course but it's got oliver stone written all over it which i have a love hate relationship with oliver stone the director and so Mm -hmm. it's like (sighs) i remember liking it a lot back in the day and so maybe that is because of in 1994 when it came out i loved the music the you know juliette lewis and Mm -hmm. uh, her performance their performances are amazing she in as far as the script is concerned she is the her character you know, Mallory's character is the first person to kick serious ass mm-hmm. right in the opening scene. And we didn't see that all the time right. in 1994. And so that was pretty fun. And Woody Harrelson, like, you know, we didn't know Woody Harrelson necessarily beyond. Like, Cheers. We didn't know who he could be and how hot he was uh, for those of us who like boys because it was like. He oh, was the little goofy bartender hello. in Cheers. He was. Yeah. And so that, this now, was a huge role for him. Huge. And so now revisiting it, how did I feel? I I did forget how much of a cartoon it is. Mm-hmm. I uh, It's got Oliver Stone written all over it. So if you like his cinematic style, you'll like this. But it's also widely known not as one of his most... It's not known as one of his best. I absolutely enjoyed a lot of the psychological parts, which we'll, which we'll lean into now. But mm-hmm. And the performances... And I had forgotten a ton of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, halfway through, you're watching a different movie. Because halfway through the movie, they get captured. And so, literally, I looked at the timestamp. One hour of it is their descent. Yeah. They get captured about one hour in. And then the second hour is them, what happens in jail and how that goes, you know, and how it mm-hmm. flies all the way to the end. And, you know, them getting out and all of the horror that they continue to. Yeah, it gets brutal. It's pretty brutal. Yeah, so it's kind of two different movies in a way. Well, and then then yeah, like when you're talking about the just the film style also, is you have like you, you use the word cartoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then there's like a sitcom component. Like mm-hmm. there's all these kind of goofy, you know, which what's to, just that incongruent affect like Yeah, and it also tells me, you know, is this really how like they're experiencing almost like it's like the internal monologue also or dialogue of of the killers too i thought roddy dangerfield did a really good job at yeah making that very you can see the artifice that oliver stone is using in that how do i how do i let you know how awful her childhood was without making it really deathly serious but also trying to unsettle you with it and the thing that's over the whole film is what you notice is that someone's in black and white and someone's in color and the filmmaker has said you know that the part that is in black and white is the way they saw their story is the way they put their narrative out there which is really interesting for me who some who studies story is it's like Here's how this traumatized brain of of a psychopath, let's say, is remembering these things. So in the very 
very first scene, you see uh, Woody Allen, uh, Woody Allen, haha, if only. That would have been an, a, <laughs> a very strange movie. But Woody Harrelson sitting at the bar in the cafe and the and the waitress, you know, asks him what he wants or whatever, and he orders pie or whatever the hell he does. And then there's a tight shot to her, and it's black and white. And she, like, really comes on to him, like, really sexually. And then it cuts back to color, et cetera. So what, what you can do if you decide to watch this movie again and you didn't know this is watch it and know that all the black and white is how that psychopath, whether it's Mallory or Mickey, sees the situation. situation. Mm -hmm. So he sees her as really coming on to him because he's so great, you know, the narcissist, right? Mm -hmm. That was an interesting way for me to watch this movie is to know that and then to see like they're, you know, when Mallory remembers her trauma, it's a cartoon, it's a TV sitcom. Mm -hmm. And that's just the way her narrative processes her trauma, which is a very interesting concept to me. So in that way, this movie psychologically is really interesting sure. to me because yeah. of that. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I, and, and a way that I think people who have suffered being sexually molested through a family member have to find a different uh, emotional state to disconnect from the seriousness of it so i did i respected a lot of parts of this film and i i totally understand everything that you're saying i just think watching it now i was like it's just a lot <laughs> it's just very it's, oh yeah it, it's it's a lot and but i think their performances are incredible their relationship is also you know you have this bonnie and clyde type of relationship going on but they do a really good job at discussing both of their childhoods you know oliver stone or quentin whoever you want to give probably credit to both breaking down how two people like this would find each other mm -hmm. and the mirroring involved um that they're both uh you know really extensions of one another and the, how they're able to carry out their darkest like revenge fantasies together and that's what sort of keeps them going because when we think about psychopathy or sociopathy or even like you know malignant forms of narcissism these are not people who can connect deeply from like an emotionally mature place but they can connect in a very unhealthy way and that's what these two were doing it was like two incredibly wounded birds that had come together and said this happened to you this happened to you we're going to do this together and so there there was like a shared psychopathy i guess in the in in their relationship and that they were both able to really find deep love for one another by playing that out together and that was strange yet it also makes sense because i feel like something like that would happen if two people like this found one another yeah, and we and see I, it in true crime all the time. Absolutely. And the cartoonish violence, you know, that they do is these is these precursors, you know, Quentin, et cetera, the precursors with that splash of blood yeah. and the cartoonish thing and the incongruent affect with the laughing during violence and all that, all meant to sort of unsettle us and all indicators indicators of mental illness and trauma and yeah. all those things. I think you had something about like the realism piece. Yeah, I, I want to say one more thing before I get to that, but I thought that there's one part that I found quite interesting and I would like to maybe pick your brain on maybe the Oliver Stone's intention of this scene, or maybe I'm just overlooking it. But I did find, what I found interesting is the scene where the old Indian dies. Mm -hmm. She actually has some re remorse in that scene, which I thought was really kind of a cool touch mm -hmm. because she was like, he didn't deserve that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we think about somebody who's truly a psychopath, that they're not really going to necessarily, you know, there's always outliers and things like that. But, I feel like because so much of what her revenge is about are these men who have hurt her. She looked at this guy and was like, he, he's an innocent in this. And she was able to connect to that. And I thought that was, there was something about that moment I really liked. I don't know. Yeah. And even in the very, very end, Woody says the thing that the kill that he regretted was kind of like, I wish that Indian guy hadn't died. Yes. And I do think, I don't know what Oliver Stone was thinking, but I do know my own reaction, which is I feel like in the story, that's the moment when they separate in many ways, right? Because the next scene is they get bitten by rattlesnakes and then they go out in a blaze of glory and they get caught 
and then mm-hmm. it starts the whole rest of the movie. So I feel like in the emotional arc of the characters, there had to be not only a plot shift where, okay, now's where they get caught, but the emotional arc had to shift too. And I think it's the moment that we realize that her motivations are different than his. 100%. And that her personality structure is very different from his. And mm-hmm. so we sort of see... For the rest of the movie, we see the writers and the filmmaker really lean into his narcissism. He talks right. about like being God, mm-hmm. da, 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 da. and then we lean into her trauma bonding. And totally, her, like I just thought that was such that she's was violent, of course. But. Yeah, yeah, but that's <laughs> but, yeah. where I think I I really loved that subtlety so much. Yeah. in the movie, I thought that was really clever and just it made it a little bit deeper for me. I guess. So there's an article in Psychology Today actually called The Natural Born Killers with a question mark. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's an old article that came out in 1995, but it is research that we're still talking about today and and somewhat related to the article that you talked about earlier on in the show. Talking about, is there a glitch in the brain of violent criminals, but that doesn't mean they're insane. So we've talked about this, and I've certainly talked about this on the show before, that many people who go to trial who have had a number of homicides, they might go for the insanity plea. And we know that insanity, the problem with that is insanity is a legal term. It's not, it's not a clinical term, but the majority of the time, what is deemed to be a mental illness is more of this character, logical disorder, antisocial personality disorder, psychopathy, things like this. So what allows somebody to actually do this is, you know, there's been extensive research on the prefrontal cortex of the brain, a region that is right behind our forehead. This is where all of our decision-making and impulse control lies. And we found that there's deficiencies associated with a variety of behaviors in that area. So risk-taking, rule-breaking, aggression, impulsivity. That's why sometimes when we will watch people who are in later stages of life and their personalities change, one of the things that doesn't mean that they're becoming psychopaths. It just means that there could be what we call like a, a, a frontal lobe dementia that's setting in, which can really change the behavior of an older person. And sometimes we'll even see them have violent or impulsive tendencies. It can be very sad, especially for family members. But in this study, it says there's a catch. The murders in the study had all pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Might mental illness account for their abnormal PET scans? No. And like I said, insanity is a legal concept, not a medical condition. The variety of mental disorders the killer cited in their insanity pleas do not explain their lower prefrontal activity. Biologically, what we know or what we have found so far is that psychopaths' brains are a little bit different. And that's why when we distinguish psychopathy from sociopathy, psychopathy tends to have more of a, of a neurodivergence and there, there are neural structural differences, at least of what we have found so far. And there's a lot of different theories on this, but what we are, what this article implies is that if this is the case, um, that there might be changes that show up on a PET scan, will this be, a slippery slope to parole time and how we will now be using scans instead of looking at the evidence of rehabilitation that might, that a convict might profess remorse or whatever. It's like, okay, we're not going to go by what you're saying. We're actually just going to scan your brain again and see if there's been any changes, but just kind of an interesting conversation to think about because there are different schools of thought behind what are the advantages and disadvantages of leaning towards this is not the person's fault. Right. Okay. Very cool. When I was watching this movie, I thought to myself, how did these people get together, right? And I looked for the moment. And of course, it's very obvious when uh, we learn that Mallory's dad, who's played by Rodney Dangerfield, is a son of a bitch. Oh, such a son And of calls bitch. her a bitch and all of that and tells her he's going to come upstairs and have sex with her and all this horrible shit that's done in like that cartoon TV sitcom. And then <laughs> in their memory of it, Mickey comes to the door and he uh, he says later in the movie that he's fate's messenger when he's doing the later interviews with Robert Downey Jr. He he talks about being fate's messenger, which is played out in that very beginning scene where he says it's fate. We should go with it. And she literally just leaves with him. Mm -hmm. He just takes her away from it all. And so she's leaving this verbal, physical, and sexual violence. There's, She's obviously witnessed domestic violence as well. She's got all the violence in the home. She just leaves with him. And I, and it's such a 
from a psychological look, it's a little on the nose, right? It's like, here's a, a broken young teenage woman who's suffering a lot of trauma and she leaves with the big strong man that she sees that can save her. Right. And he has ulterior motives of not being alone and being fate's messenger, but also having a disciple, right? Because he's, but he's also very sexually driven and mm-hmm. violently driven. And he's, you know, in many ways, <clears throat> a sadist and mm-hmm. is just acting on impulse and then ends up with a, a lady he's got, you know, around him. And, and then we learn later that he had a very abusive mother. And so he's trying to fix that wound in himself by, I think, you know, by abusing women in the way that he abuses Mallory which you might not look at their relationship as abusive necessarily on the surface, but it has an abusive quality to it, of Mm -hmm. course, because she's not exactly healthy or making the best choices, certainly. And he's not kind of coming from a place of wanting her to make the best choices. He's completely Mm self-serving. And she just, you know, she sees him as a hero that saved her from Mm -hmm. her abusers and then, and then becomes, and, and because, you know, her brain isn't fully formed when they first meet. Right. Right. So, between the 10 years between when they meet and when maybe her brain stops forming, she commits all this. There's just no going back. There was no, no. winning there. She's going to form all this moral content and all of these experiences while her brain is still going. It's like, it's like substance using during that time. I was about to say like an arrested development. Yeah. It's yeah. an arrested development. And then she ends up, you know, playing that out obviously. But one other thing I wanted to mention, and maybe this is in closing unless you have something else, but I thought I didn't, I didn't know this at the time, but maybe one of the reasons why I liked this movie when I first saw it, not only was it odd and strange and new and different, it was a different kind of take, was that it's a the whole movie is a comment on true crime, our true our fetishizing of true crime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, they fetishize the capture, the police violence that happens, the media is, you know, when they capture them at the drugstore that whole scene is very representative of what we do now over and over again and have done since 1994 and, and before is we, f- we, as a culture, we fetishize true crime. And here I am saying that as a true crime podcaster mm-hmm. is that, you know, and I can, and I can tell you all the true crime episodes that we have outperform everything else we do because our culture eats that shit up. Well, even so much that I know people that cannot sit down and watch a Hollywood horror film, but can binge a true crime. Yes. Which is real. Like they can't read a book, but they'll sit down and watch like 72 hours of forensic files for real, for real. And I thought what was also interesting about this movie. So, so for that reason, look at it. It's actually kind of a distillation of what we do. It's yeah. horror films, it's true crime, and it's psychology. This movie is deeply psychological. He even mentioned he even mentions the shadow at one point. Mm-hmm. Tom Sizemore even has a trauma story in this. He tells his trauma story because he's a fucking psychopath, right. the cop. And he's, oh god, and he even says he even says can't get rid of the shadow, can you? Like they, it's so intensely psychological. This movie that I would you know recommend watching this movie from a perspective of it's a horror movie because it's there's a lot of killing it's a statement on true crime and if you know anything about oliver stone you know he makes statement movies so he's making a statement about that and ton of psychology with how we how we revise our narratives how we tell our story how we um, revisit and re-narrate our traumas like so much shit plus it's a you know love story (laughs) Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. We're going to talk about our movie reviews and books, and we'll be right back. Thanks for listening. We are getting right to this, darn it. Yes, we are. 
We're enjoying our new book club book, which is called A Flicker in the Dark by Stacey Willingham. And we needed, after reading The Exorcist, a little bit of a palate cleanser. This is that. And this is a thriller. And we are enjoying the shit out of it because the main character is a therapist. Hello. It's a good book. And it's a good book. It's fun. It got really good reviews. And so I'm enjoying it so far. It is just the kind of ride I was looking for. Same. I was, I'm also reading another book I wanted to share before uh, we get to the movie stuff. It's a book called New Teeth by Simon Rich, who okay. is a very, uh, his father is a vam- very famous New York Times uh, reviewer named Frank Rich from back in the day. But this is Simon Rich, and he's written a book called New Teeth. He's a humorist in his own right. He was a writer for Saturday Night Live. And now he has a book out and it's a, a, a book of stories and it's the, an odd little book. Now I learned about this because I listened to Conan O'Brien's podcast mm-hmm. and uh, specifically the ones that where he has guests on and Simon was on that show and they talked all about Saturday Night Live, but they also talked about this book and, you know, like John Mulaney calls uh, Simon the Stephen King of comedy writing. Because what it is is a bunch of stories, and they are part comedy, part heartfelt. There's some heartfelt feelings in them as well. Part like sci-fi or ridiculousness, I guess. And the thing that's funny about them is they're not like laugh out loud funny necessarily, but the, the way he couples things together in they're absurd so (laughs) for instance (laughs) i have two or three favorite stories so far i'm I'm not done i'm only about halfway through for instance one of my favorite stories i think is maybe the first or second story two murderous pirates find a child stowaway on board and attempt to balance pillaging with co-parenting oh so if you can imagine when you're reading this it is two pirates, arg, like that kind of pirate. Arg is like the eighth word in every sentence. Oh, that's funny. And they find a baby and they're parenting it. And one of them is like more touchy-feely than the other. So yeah. it's like, arg, why did you do that? You take care of the baby. Arg, I wasn't, you know, I mean, so yeah. you hear it. So two pirate. So all these stories have a parenting vibe to it. Okay. New teeth, I believe maybe he had a kid or something. Yeah. And that's, that's where it's at. So one of the... <laughs> That's funny. One of the other ones is a toddler detective. There's a toddler who's maybe three years old and he's a detective. (laughs) So he's three, can't feed himself. Right. All of that. Don't really talk much. And a detective. So he has a full use of language. Okay. But he's three. So when there's a, you know, I can't quite reach the doorknob, duh, you know, love, can you get it for me? Kind of thing. Like he, like a lady, you know, cause it's kind of a noir. So it's like, hey babe, I can't quite reach the doorknob. Can you get that for me? Cause he's oh, three. Oh, that's hilarious. Cause he's three, but he's a detective there and is, he talks like a noir, noir detective. That reminds me of uh, a cartoon that was out a few years ago. I forgot what it was called, but the baby was a detective. Yes. Yeah. He's, so it's, it's described. He's a hard boiled case. He's a two-year-old detective struggles to make sense of a world gone mad. And the story is called The Big Nap. <laughs> oh, that's that's cute. <laughs> there's one that I read where there's an ape who's in a relationship. Yeah. So it's a gorilla in a relationship. Uh-huh. And so he talks just like you, a gorilla talks in the movies. Me hungry now. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> So it's a circumstantial so it's comedy. Like a, it's all short stories. And then, yes, yes. That and it's all fun. fleshed out. And it's it's just ridiculous. That sounds fun. Yeah. I, I mean, like not that. all of them are, are wins, but those are three that I really enjoyed so far. So anyway. All right. What, movies did, you, what movie did you watch? I watched um, one actually from 2018 called Freaks. So not to be confused with the one from like the 30s. <laughs> this was, it's a sci-fi thriller. Give you the synopsis here. A bold girl discovers a bizarre, threatening, and mysterious new world beyond her front door after she escapes her father's protective and paranoid control. This was a really clever film. It's a little bit slow in the beginning. 
Emile Hirsch, who I've not seen in anything for a while, who I really love, plays the father. And Bruce Dern plays a really significant character in this as well. However, Lexi Kolker, who plays the little girl, is phenomenal. Uh, To me, this has a lot of different deeper meanings but at the beginning you think that the father might be abusive and not letting her into the world sure and that as it unfolds you figure out that they are in the home because they have supernatural powers even though they look like humans out in the world they are considered abnormals and if people out in the world discover them they're going to be dead because there's no place in the world for people like this so for me, when I'm watching it, and this may not be the intention at all of the director, but for me, I think it's layered with what do you do when you have a child who does not fit in the world? Um, and as a parent, the lengths you will go to to protect them from danger. And I think that I've had cases where I've had parents who have a trans child or a gay child, and they, you know, and there's a lot of this, like what would seemingly be paranoid protection but more so I know what the world is going to do to my child if they they really truly know who they are and um, so there's that psychological element but the sci-fi element is also just like at the surface what it is is once you find out what her supernatural power is which I won't tell you they're able to figure out what happened to the mother because they're sort of evasive about it at the beginning. Dad says that mom died, but that's not necessarily true. Something else has happened. And so the movie works to get, I'm trying to not give anything away because I I feel like it's worth a watch, but the, um, the movie works its way through how they handle this supernatural power that they have without being completely, without it being transparent to the world, protecting themselves and the dad obviously going at some point, I'm going to need to find her another caregiver because part of his power is to use his energy to protect her from anything. So towards, as the movie starts to go on, he becomes more and more exhausted, which is terrifying him. He's like, I can't keep as close of an eye on her. So it's, it, it has a lot of really good feels. Aww. And then there's like a, like just a sci-fi thriller element to it as well. So I, I dug it. I thought yeah. it, w- it was really different. Nice. Yeah. Thank you very much for that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Put it on the list there. It sounds a little it's bit a good, familiar. It's a but really I don't good cast too. Oh, Bruce good. Dern is awesome in it. Nice. Believe it was in our Guillermo del Toro episode where I said I had not seen the orphanage, <sighs> and What'd so I saw the orphanage, and it was funny because I watched it, and then a friend of mine, shout out to Tia because she listens to the show, texted me about something else and. I said, hey, did you ever rectify the uh, <laughs> the orphanage situation? Because that's my favorite horror movie. And I was like, I did. And it's funny because I had just rectified it. Yeah. So love that. Yeah. Psychic Tia. So uh, the orphanage, to revisit briefly, 2007 horror drama, Guillermo del Toro. It is so good. Isn't it? So atmospheric, mm-hmm. beautifully crafted. The story is wonderful. I mean, the ending was... The ending is like, mm, oh, I know. <laughs> hey, I know. now, that's beautiful. Everything that you love about, you know, of course all the movies aren't great, but like everything you love about Guillermo is represented. For sure. The mom-son yeah. relationship, <clears throat> the family ties, the spooky bits, you know, he definitely delivers in the tension and the atmosphere and the spooky And bits. it's so character-driven. You really care about these people, and too. And it's magical in mm-hmm. some ways, which I think he does really, really well. <sighs> yeah, I, I'm so glad. Yeah, I love this movie, too. Spanish-language film, I say, get on it if you haven't actually been down that road. Very good. Yeah, mm-hmm. I concur. Cool. I watched a movie, uh, Shutter movie called Night's End. It's a new movie. An anxious shut-in moves into a haunted apartment, hiring a stranger to perform an exorcism, which quickly takes a horrific turn. So the film starts off pretty damn good. Michael Shannon's in it, who I just love. I have seen it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
starts off pretty strong. What you know about the character is part of the reason he is a shut-in is that he is recovering. Well, he's supposed to be recovering from alcoholism and has lost his job over it and just becomes very reclusive and ends up starting a YouTube channel. And so he communicates with his ex-wife and her new husband, Michael Shannon, through Zoom and pretty much his whole life is on Zoom. He finds out that the the apartment that he's living in, the building is haunted by this woman. And long story short, he reaches out to someone to help him perform an exorcism uh, while he has this whole Zoom thing and people are on on that with him to try to exorcise this demon out of the apartment. At this point... (laughs) The movie goes from being pretty okay to horrible. Mm -hmm. It becomes more comedic than it's supposed to be. It all of a sudden becomes an 80s horror film with glowing eyes, something out of like Phantasm or whatever. And it really just drops off. Like it starts off pretty good. And I feel like like the acting's great and it's going somewhere. It's and like then, a faux found footage oh my type God. of thing. Yeah, and then it just like all of a sudden becomes, it just dies, dies. off. Yeah, no, no. It has a good setup and mm-hmm. good characters and actors not yeah. bad. And Skip it. You're kind of going with it. And uh, I'm, I looked back on my letterbox and I gave it one and a half stars. And, yeah. that's, and that one and a half stars is for that first like 20 or 30 that's minutes. That's right. I think it has an average of like two stars. Because, oh, because it was good. And then, it was. And then it, not so much. It just went <laughs> right yep. after. Yeah. Super cheese fest after that. Yep. I also watched a movie called The Privilege. I don't know if you've seen this oh, one or it not. It's really familiar. Let yeah, me you it may up. have seen this. I, I thought maybe I had it on my list because of you, but I don't know. It's German. It's, but, uh, well, actually, it's. From oh, t- yes. Okay. Yes. So it's from 2022 mystery horror thriller, and I watched it, and it's German. Yeah, I, I talked about it on here like a couple months ago. Yeah, yeah you watched it. Okay. What'd you think? So I put it on my list. And so the, uh, to review, a wealthy mm-hmm. teen and his friends attending an elite Ooh. private school uncover a dark conspiracy while looking looking into a series of strange supernatural events. So in general, I liked the ride. The thing about this movie that (laughs) the thing you gotta know about this movie, in my opinion, is that it is, it has multiple subgenres going on. It does. So if you're confused or you don't like the fact that too much is, they're trying to do too much and there's a bunch of subgenres going on, you're not going to like this movie. Certainly not a perfect movie. I just enjoyed it because I like a lot of the subgenres that they were trying to do. Do I think it succeeded overall? Not necessarily. Mm-hmm. But I did think it was worth a watch because it's a teen movie. I like the teenage trope of like teenagers solving crime type of situation. Mm-hmm. There are there is a family sub subgenre going on, like family and horror, right? Trauma, ghosts, sci-fi, medical trauma cults bugs <laughs> like i know they do it all so in that sense uh, yeah <laughs> that's a struggle <laughs> that's a struggle all those subgenres trying to succeed i i do think in some ways they were doing too much and and it's a romance yes. there's a brief gratuitous threesome that happens that you know what I didn't mind for whatever reason. When they first started doing it, I'm like, really? Are we really going there? We're going to have a threesome in the middle of whatever's happening. But you could just, like, for a second, and it didn't last very long, so I was, thank God for that. But it was like, you know what? I can kind of fabricate a reason why they did this because then for the rest of the movie, there's this, those three characters have a bit more of a bond, as you might imagine. So that happened, and I I, I enjoyed it. <laughs> Good, I'm glad. I mean, I enjoyed it in general, but I uh, hesitate to recommend because I think that horror fans do like their their genres pretty clear. I, and it was a little bit of a mess in that sense. It was like yeah. bugs and cults and sci-fi <laughs> and family drama and gee, many Christmas. Oh my god! It went all over the place. <laughs> It's like, whatever you like, we got it. We got this. We got that. Like, what else are we doing? All in German. Where's the alien that comes out of his tummy? And no, the bugs come out of the mouth. Like, what the hell is happening? Hello. So now we're going to do the answers. Uh Uh-huh. Can I ask you a question, though? Mm -hmm. When you want me to find a new genre for this, I'm assuming it's still the same tune, though. Yeah, 
you're gonna okay. do it to that tune. Okay. Just I got an opera voice. I got a hard rock voice. I'm just looking for a okay. little, you know, zhuzh. All right. Number one. I love that you're worrying about it already. <laughs> you're just trying to be creative. I know. Special I if, special if. Can you like listen as listeners? Can you not even wait until she comes up with something else? I feel like they can. Well, they might be able to wait, but I feel like they're curious. You're like yes, yes, we yes, can we wait. can wait for the song stylings of Gabby Barron. <laughs> Um, okay number one special effects artist designed the gill man and the creature from the black lagoon after what famous figure yeah i have i didn't even know what you were talking about so no i don't know oh the oscar statue oh okay thank you the oscar statue okay it's called a gillman yeah well he was the that's the that's what the creature was called okay the the black lagoon he was a gill man yeah number two the movie nosferatu wait did we get the answer yeah the oscar statue oh sorry yeah they they created him from the Oscar statue. Ah, understood. Yeah. Number two, the movie Nosferatu originated from which country? Germany. Yes. The word is actually Romanian, but the movie right. is from Germany. Yeah, I, I, I knew it was a misdirect on your part. Number three, what is the hypnagogic jerk? Well, I don't know, but I know that hypno is sleep, so... I don't know, jerking around in your sleep. <laughs> that I mean, dirty. I could go there. That sounds really I dirty. I could go there. Well, I, I mean, sort of. It's the full body jerk when you're slipping into the unconsciousness of sleep. So All when right. your body, like when you're falling off the, you know, yeah. the proverbial cliff. Oh, yeah. We have, we've all done that when we're it's so jarring, asleep isn't it? and you jerk awake oh, or whatever. God. I'm like, okay, Kathy, relax. Yeah, calm down. Calm, calm down. Calm number four what 1991 horror film starring d wallace stone and ray walston is about a film student and and aspiring screenwriter who has recurring dreams of a young girl named sarah who is caught in a fire and being chased by a strange man trying to kill her (laughs) that's her nosferatu voice uh, I don't know. Was it any good? <laughs> no, it's terrible. It's called Popcorn, and it was a. Oh. It, it's a. It's has like a cult following, but it came out in the early nineties. If you that, look, I think that's on Shutter or something. It right is. Now. If you look it up too, you'll probably remember the poster, or the cover. I'm like, box I scrolled from by that just the other day. <laughs> yeah. Number five in 1898, American author Morgan Robertson wrote a novella. Uh, that unknowingly predicted one of the most devastating American tragedies, which occurred in 1912. What was this tragic event? I don't know. The, the plague? The Titanic. Ah. Uh, and the book was called The Wreck of the Titan. So he wrote this in 1898, and then it comes true, you know, 14 years later. Yeah, that happens. Yeah. I hate when that happens, actually. Thank you so much for that. And thank you all for being listeners. We very much appreciate you. And guess what? We will definitely give you our review of Monster Palooza, the event, and and everything that happened with that. And perhaps we'll have some news from there because maybe they'll say some stuff that's cool at some of the events and we'll share our merch with you and all of that. But we will also be having a regular episode. So stay tuned for that. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. 